My name is Peter Kroll. I'm an elder here at Grace Fellowship Church. And my wife, Erin, and I are approaching our 10th anniversary. Just a few weeks. And since she's out of town this week and she's not here to defend herself, I would like to tell you what is my biggest cross to bear in my marriage. My biggest cross to bear is having to live with perfection. Really? Some of you have been to my house. Okay? It's hard to live with this woman when I have no motivation to ever eat out at a restaurant because the food's better at home. And the best vacations are when we stay at home. And she always smells great, especially after she sweats. She smells great. She once, early in our marriage, she read a book called Confessions of an Organized Housewife. And I think most women who read this book, many women would be overwhelmed by it. Erin's response when she finished this book was, I can do better than that. And this is what it's like to live with her. Similarly, our church is growing greatly. God is at work in us. And our church moves closer and closer to perfection with each new improvement that we make, that God grants to us. We started growth groups not too long ago, which was a great opportunity for people to connect more in smaller groups. We have a new outreach team helping us to think strategically about ways we can get connected in our community. Just this last week, the elders were reviewing our budget, and we found that we've already hit two-thirds of our budgeted giving for this year after six months of the year. And so we praise God for you, and we praise God for how he's at work in our church. We get Warren Wright on the drum set on a regular basis. We're getting pretty close to perfection here. The donuts are now cut in half before we even get to fellowship time. And we have more pregnant women here than a Mormon tabernacle in Salt Lake City would have. So we're getting close to perfection. But two things remain. Two things remain that John has for us this morning in 1 John 4. We must continue to learn to identify false prophets and to synchronize truth with love. You can see those things on your outline. We're going to be in 1 John chapter 4. It's on page 661 if you have a church Bible. And I I really want you all to be encouraged today. I want you to be very encouraged because I think that much of what John is saying here, we do much of it already. And we should be encouraged because John wants us to go further up and further in into these assurances of faith that he's spending the time on in his letter here in 1 John. And in this chapter, 1 John 4, he has some very encouraging things to say. Like in verse 4, he says, little children, you are from God. Verse 6, that you can know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Verse 7, those who love are born of God and know God. Verse 12, if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Verse 17, we may have confidence in the day of judgment. Now, there is much truth in this chapter that is sobering. And perhaps a few here today will need to be sobered because you have little reason to be confident before the Lord. 
However, I've been praying for you all as I've been preparing this text because I think that most of you have much reason to be confident in the Lord because God is among you and you are from God and you know God. And I pray that this chapter will encourage you. So I'm going to pray again now that this chapter will encourage you and then we'll read it. Our Father in heaven, please encourage our hearts and strengthen them with confidence for the day of judgment. Help us to love you and honor you and see you in Jesus' name. Amen. First John chapter 4. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world. Therefore, they speak from the world and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this, we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit and we have seen and testify that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love and whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear for fear has to do with punishment and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. First part to being a perfect church is to identify false prophets. In verse 1, John gives two imperatives. Do not believe, but test. So there are spirits out there. Don't believe them all, but test them. And the reason is because not every spirit out there is a good spirit. Many false prophets have gone out into the world. 
So, just because someone has a spiritual experience, that doesn't mean it's from God. When little boys claim to have gone to heaven and come back to tell us about it, watch out. When movies about the Bible are rolling out of Hollywood like crazy, watch out. Don't believe, but test. And this past winter, Starbucks CEO Howard Schultz did an interview with Oprah Winfrey. He formerly had been CEO. He left. He returned. And she interviewed him, asked him why he came back. And he said it was because the company, Starbucks, was having a spiritual crisis because it had left its core values and they needed him. And so that was a spiritual crisis. You see, everything that claims to be spiritual is not from God. Many false prophets have gone out. They're not just out there, but they have gone out. They began in here. These false prophets began in the church. They had connections to the church. They had a history with the Christian church. And the point is this. Just because something looks and smells Christian doesn't mean it is. So how do we identify them? How do we identify false prophets? Two ways. By their two confessions. Letter A. By their verbal confession. First, letter A, is by their verbal confession. Verse 2. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. Let's understand this. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Remember that Christ is not Jesus' last name. It's his title. It means the chosen one of God, the one appointed by God to accomplish the task of saving the world. What John is saying is that the spirits from God are those who say that Jesus, the man Jesus, who lived and breathed and walked on earth, he is the Christ come in the flesh. He is the one chosen by God to save the world. He was a real man who came from God. He was God, and he did what he came to do, which was to save the world. And any spirit, verse 3, that confesses otherwise is not from God. In fact, it is the spirit of Antichrist. And remember in 1 John, Antichrist is not some super baddie at the end of the world. The Antichrist is now in the world, and there are many of them running around. So this confession, this verbal confession, doesn't need to be active In other words, verse 3, the spirit that does not confess Jesus, it doesn't have to be an active, aggressive attack on Jesus. It could simply be any spirit that simply ignores Jesus or sets him aside or considers him irrelevant. Any spirit that does that is spirit of Antichrist. So when Starbucks has a spiritual crisis because it has left its core values and they need the CEO to come back, that is the spirit of Antichrist. Because there's no mention of Jesus Christ. The point is this. You can know false prophets by their verbal confession. By what they say. But there's another way you can identify them as well. Letter B. It's by their functional confession. You can identify false prophets by their functional confession. Look at verse 6. We are from God. And whoever knows God listens to us. John is talking about himself and his fellow apostles who wrote the New Testament, those who saw Jesus and recorded for us his words and his works. 
And he says that whoever knows God listens to us. In other words, whoever knows God will pay attention to the Bible. They will listen to what the apostles have said. Those who don't know God, whoever is not from God, does not listen to us. By this, we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. So those who don't know God are those who don't listen to the apostles. And so you can tell true and false spirits, the spirit of truth and the spirit of error, by how they approach the Bible. How does this apply? We have a measuring rod to identify truth and error. And it can be by the verbal confession, what people say about Jesus or do not say about him, as the case may be. And it can be how they treat the Bible that speaks about Jesus. Those who disregard the Bible are functionally denying Jesus. And so if a spiritual experience is something that's emotional, it's something that's internal, it's in my mind, it's in my heart, it's in my experience, it's in my history, it's anywhere but with Jesus in the Bible, it's the spirit of Antichrist. It is not from God. There are verbal confessions and functional confessions. And the scripture, God's objective, unbreakable, complete, reliable, sufficient, infallible, inerrant word was once spoken and is still speaking. And that's why we can't get by without it. Because this is where we meet Jesus. And he's the one who rescues us. So by these two tests, the verbal confession, how do you treat Jesus? And the functional confession, how do you treat the Bible? We can tell true from false spirits. For example, Jehovah's Witnesses are very, very serious about the Bible. But they deny that Jesus is the Christ. They are false prophets. Mormons will tell you that they believe Jesus is the Son of God. They will use that language. But they reject the Bible. They say there's another revelation, the Book of Mormon, that's even more important. They are false prophets. And you may talk to people who listen to a beautiful piece of music and consider it to be a spiritual experience. And if it if it exists apart from confession of Christ and adherence to Scripture, it's a false prophet. It's not a spirit from God. Children... For those children who are here, there's only one person who can save you. Does anybody know who is the one person who can save you? God. And who did he send to save you? Jesus. Jesus is the one person who can save you. And there's one place where you can learn about Jesus. Where is that? Where do you learn about Jesus? In the Bible. So children, there will be many people who tell you different things that somebody else can save you or there's some other book or some other place where you can learn about God and don't believe them. If they don't trust Jesus or the Bible, they are not true. They are not from God. These false prophets are everywhere. There are loads of them. Verse 5 says they are from the world. They speak from the world. The world listens to them. There are many, many, many of them. But verse 4, you are from God and have overcome them because your God is greater than their God. The spirit in you, the one that is from God, is greater than the spirit in them. Now, church, Grace Fellowship Church, I think you're great at this test the spirits thing. 
I really do. By God's grace, we have come so far. It's one thing I love about our church. You love the Bible. You love Jesus. You love it when we preach Jesus from the Bible. And you'll catch us if we start drifting from the Jesus of the Bible. I love that. And you know, as we love that and we're on the lookout for false prophets, there's a strong temptation for me. Maybe you can relate. The temptation for me is that I get into such a defensive fighter mindset because false prophets are all all over the place. I get into such a fighter mindset that I begin to mistrust anyone who disagrees with me on any point. Have you ever struggled with that or have you seen that in the church where we like to fight because of the truth? And for those seeking to discern truth from error, there will always be a struggle here. And so John reminds us as he moves on in the chapter not to suspect each other all the time. Just because you're trying to discern truth from error does not mean you should mistrust or suspect each other all the time. He goes on to his second point here, which is to synchronize truth with love. Truth is critical for the life of the church, and we will never be perfect without truth. But we cannot separate truth from love. Truth is not true if it comes without love. If we suspect everyone and everything, if we fight for every opinion, if we communicate suspicion and mistrust, our truth is no longer true. And so how do we synchronize these two things? How do we make sure to keep truth and love in very close connection? Well, there are three ways to do it. The first thing is we have to understand true love. Letter A, we must understand true love. And he explains this in verses 7 through 12. Verse 7, the key command is, Beloved, let us love one another. Why should we love one another? For love is from God. And the one who loves has been born of God and knows God. The opposite in verse 8, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. See what he says there? He does not say God is like love. He does not say that God loves well. He does not say God shows love or demonstrates love or models love. He says God is love. It is in God's nature to love. What does this mean? What does this mean that God is love? Does this mean that God is a cosmically squishy, comfy, sappy, sickly sweet cotton candy goo full of immature infatuation? That's what we think of as love sometimes, right? It's just the goop we feel for other people. (laughs) Is love that thing that we find when we look inside and follow our hearts? Is love what quickens our hearts and shortens our breath? Is love, does love make God and us feel really good about ourselves? Is that what love is? Because That's often what we think of as love, and that's what the world tells us love is. And so John wants to make sure we know what love is, so he tells us, verse 9, in this, the love of God was made manifest among us. Okay, ready for love? You want a definition of love? Here it is. God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. 
Verse 10, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. The point is this, here's love. God sent his son so we might live. God loved us when we did not love him. He sent his son to be the propitiation or the defense barrier for our sins. God paid the price of his own just anger against our sin. How does this apply? Friends, we must understand what true love is. True love has very little to do with hormones. It has very little to do with adrenaline. It even has very little to do with friendship. True love means paying the price yourself for the good of others. Paying the price yourself for the good of others. True love is unconditional in the sense that you're doing this for people who aren't paying the price for you. You are loving those who do not love you. And love is intentional. True love is intentional, is that you do this so that these people will be better off as a result. In short, love means taking pain so that others may change. So love, true love, always hurts and it always has an agenda. And so in verse 11, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Verse 12 is amazing. No one has ever seen God. Remember John said that in his gospel in chapter 1? No one has ever seen God, but the one who is from God, who has been in closest fellowship with the Father, has made him known. He said, no one has ever seen God, but Jesus came to show us God. Here, look at what he says. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God abides in us. You see, no one's ever seen God, but if you love one another, they will see God. This is amazing. And he says, if we love one another, two things will happen. God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. And so he expands on these two things in the rest of the chapter. When you understand true love, these two things will happen. So first, to abide in the truth, letter B. So you see verse 13, he says, by this we know that we abide in him and he in us. And verse 17, by this love is perfected with us. He's going to expand on these two things. So first, God abides in us. Verse 13, by this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he's given us his spirit. Now, John already told us how to test the spirits to make sure we have the one from God, but he gives it to us again here. Verse 14, we've seen and testify that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, God abides in him. Friends, if you confess Jesus, then you understand God's love. You see that? 15, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him. 16, so we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. So as you abide in the truth about God's love for you by sending Jesus, paying the price for you, you abide in that truth, you will understand true love. You will understand God's love. And you may cling to the message of God's love for the world by sending his son. And as you cling to that message, it shows that you know God for real. You abide in love by abiding in the truth. How does this apply? Your confession drives your life. Your confession drives your life. And 
Think of your confession both ways we talked about before, your verbal confession and your functional confession. Your confession has both to do with what you say and how you act. It shows what kind of a God you have. So let me explain this. If my God, whom I believe, whom I trust in my heart of hearts, here's what I think God is. If my God is a God of love who sent his son as the Savior so that God could be my father, then I must love others like Jesus has loved me. I will pay their debts against me. I will not hold their sins against them. I will refuse to hold grudges. I will never intimidate or manipulate or withhold good things. I won't be touchy or jumpy or suspicious, but my defenses will come down, my life will open up, and I'll be affectionate and compassionate. My, your confession drives your life. But consider this. If my God, if, if the way I view God is that he is angry with me and he is disappointed with me constantly because I can't live up to him, you know how I will treat others? I will be constantly angry and disappointed with them. If my God is distant and disinterested in me, I will be distant and disinterested from people. If I think God is fault-finding and argumentative, guess what? I will be fault-finding and argumentative. Your confession drives your life. If you abide in the truth, you will abide in God. If you abide in the truth and you confess the right God and you live as though your God is love, you will abide in his love and then his love can flow through you. And so that's where John goes last. So to synchronize truth with love, we must first understand how true love works. Then we abide in the truth. But what happens when we do that is we will perfect the love. And perfecting the love has two consequences. The first is confidence. Verse 17, notice this. By this is love perfected with us. You see, this love is not yet perfect. He said in verse 12, if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Now he's explaining that. By this love is love perfected with us. And the way he's using the term perfect, he doesn't say that God's love is flawed. He's saying that God's love is incomplete. It hasn't yet accomplished all that God wants it to accomplish. But here's how, it, how he does it. Here's how God perfects his love is he gives us confidence for the day of judgment. God's love reaches perfection when the day of judgment comes and we stand before him with confidence. God's love had this goal in mind from the very beginning. Because you see, God loved us in eternity past from before the foundation of the world. And God loved us in history past when he sent his son to remove our sin. And God loved us in the recent past when he sent his spirit into our hearts and transformed them to love him when we first came to know him. And God loves us in the present as he does good to us and he teaches us to identify false prophets. But you see, with all of this love, God's love won't be perfect. It won't be complete until we get to the last day when he comes in all his glory and Jesus, with his mighty throng of angels, shines light like a blazing beacon of righteousness and he sits on his throne of judgment with his penetrating, knowing gaze that expose everything we've ever done or said, 
or thought, and he exposes how we did not love him as we ought to have loved him, but he still makes us to stand there before him with confidence. Despite that. Verse 18, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment. When Jesus comes and he judges and he exposes everything, we won't cower in fear of punishment because we know that we will never be punished because Jesus already was. That's how perfect love casts out fear. How is this possible? How can God's love reach this height of perfection that imperfect people can stand before a perfect God without fearing any punishment? Verse 19, we we love because he first loved us. We didn't deserve it. And guess what? When we get to the day of judgment, we won't deserve it then either. But despite that, his love gives us confidence before his judgment. That's one way his love is perfected. The second way his love is perfected is that it actually produces in us love for our brothers. You see in verse 17 where this confidence comes from? By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because, here's why we have confidence in the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. Now, what is he? What has John told us? God is love. So as he is, what's that? Love. So as he is, so are we. So if God is love, then what are we? Love. And this is the source of our confidence. This is a source of our confidence at the day of judgment. It's because as God is love, so also are we love in this world. We love because he loved. When we know his love, we can't help but love. And we will love others. And he goes on in 20 and 21 to say that if you struggle to love people, if you hate your brother, you really don't know his love. We are not naturally loving people and we don't deserve any credit for the love we offer because the love we offer came from God. God's love transforms us and shapes us and then God praises us when we are like him in this world. It gives us confidence before him. So we will get to that judgment the last day when Jesus is on his great throne in all his glory. And we will say to him, my God, look at what your love did to my life. That wasn't me. That was you. And when we say that, he will say, well done, good and faithful servant. And he praises you for the love that you demonstrated on his behalf, that he worked through you. How does this apply? Friends, love breeds love. In other words, your life betrays your confession. If God has loved you, you will love others. So if you are not loving others, that shows that you don't have a God who is love. You're not with that God. And so in closing, the the problem of of living with my wife's perfection, it, it 
the problem really comes when my expectations fail. Okay, so she's not really perfect. When I face her imperfection, what do I do now? My worst conflicts with Aaron have come when I have tried to exact punishment on her because we had a conflict and I was clearly right. You know, I, I just know it's true. I was clearly right and she was clearly wrong. And so I chose to make sure she knew those two facts, that I was right and she was wrong. For example, last week we were playing a game together and I felt like near the end of the game she was a pretty poor sport and she hurt my feelings. So afterwards, I wanted her to pay that debt back to me. She had hurt my feelings, so I wanted her to pay. I wanted her to feel bad for her sin and I wanted her to make changes and promise not to do again what she had done. I wanted her to pay, but that is not love. That's not how true love works. Love doesn't make her pay, but remember also, truth doesn't let her stay the same either. It's not acceptable to ignore the issue or just wait for the tension to fizzle out. True love pays the debt for her. True love takes my pain of the insult without exacting revenge on her and chooses not to hold it against her but takes it to the Lord for reimbursement. It says, Lord, she really hurt me on this one, but I know you died for her, so God, I'm trusting you to pay that back. That's what true love does. And then it goes and speaks the truth that will heal and transform to encourage change in her so that she doesn't hurt herself anymore. Because whenever we sin, we're hurting ourselves. This is how true love works. This is how truth and love are synchronized to work together. Brothers and sisters of Grace Fellowship Church, please be encouraged because you are running this race well. I haven't said much this morning that you don't already know. And most of you challenge me by your example. You continue to identify false prophets. You continue to synchronize truth with love. And as you do that, and as you continue doing those things and growing in them, others outside of our church will see the unseen God among us as he abides in us and as his love is perfected in us. Let's pray.